right, well, let's start with a word of prayer, and we will get started. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for the opportunity to come together to study your word and text with one another and with you, with your presence with us. And Jesus, we ask right now that you would pour out the power of your Holy Spirit in this place, that together we would be united through the study of your word, not divided, that together we would be united to you and to your purposes um, for this kingdom here on earth, and we would start to see glimpses of what it is you have for us in the kingdom to come as well. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All right, the title of our message this evening, or kind of conversation, as you'll see, is called Book of the Covenant. And the reason why is because the section that we're studying is often referred to in academic circles as the Book of the Covenant, because in Exodus chapter 24, verse 9, it says, And then Moses took all these words, the Book of the Covenant, and read it to the people. Um, it's also referred to as the Book of the Covenant in Nehemiah. When Nehemiah says he's going to read the book, he reads the Book of the Covenant. When we hear Book of the Covenant, we might often be thinking of like giant, massive, you know, all of the five books of Torah. But specifically, that term is used in our text in Exodus chapter 24 to refer to the portion we're studying tonight. Okay? So that's kind of what we're going to talk about. Sounds good? Great. And I'll be honest, as I started preparing and and looking at the text and seeing that we're not just going to skip over uncomfortable passages and we're going to actually read through, because that is spark, um, I couldn't figure out at all what I wanted to talk about this week because I'm mostly frustrated with the text. Uh, There's some portions where I'm like, oh, that's a good part. I like that part. And then there's other parts I'm like, I just wish that wasn't here. But it is. And I believe firmly that this is the inspired word of God, that it's God-breathed, and that it's here to tell us a story. And it's also here to tell us about who God is, who we all are coming out of Egypt, and what it is that God wants from his people. So hang tight. We're going to work on it together, and I think it'll be okay. And if not afterwards, you can at least thank God that we had really delicious food at Spark today. Like the physical food. And then, so thank you, team, and Willie and Rebecca, who were making really delicious sandwiches and all of that. Um, I love how this place feels like home. And to be honest, I'm not sure I would tackle this text anywhere else other than a place like Spark. So thank you all for being so sparky and making this work. So quick reminder, where are we? Well, the Israelites are gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God is speaking, but the Israelites are remaining at a distance because they are freaked out. They are scared to death. And this is an interesting dichotomy because God's words are life. They speak life. They bring life. And as God speaks, it is frightening them even to the point unto death where they think they'll die. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, to have this moment where Israel's like, yes, we will all sit here and we will listen. And also, fascinatingly in the text, they say, we will do and we will hear, God. Meaning that we'll do whatever you say even though we haven't heard it yet. And the rabbis have a whole bunch of fun explanations of this. They talk about how perhaps it was that, you know, as God spoke in the desert, this place without a boundary, and as he started to speak these words of life, the Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenant, as he speaks this portion out, all of the nations on earth could hear, but they didn't all want them. He would say, okay, do not commit adultery. And the Canaanites, for example, would be like, oh, we 
love adultery, so we can't do those things, right? And then he'd go over and say, would you like my commands? He'd say to the Jebusites, and Jebusites, well, what's in them? And they said, well, you know, don't murder. Ah, we love murdering people. We can't have those things. And so then that would be, the Jebusites would reject. But when God came to Israel, this is a story the rabbis tell, he said, would you like my commandments? And instead of asking what was in them, Israel responded by just saying, your commands, your commands that bring life, absolutely, we will do it and we'll hear it. So they said yes before they even heard it. And it's an example for a beautiful obedience in the text and a lovely, um, incredible story. I'm not sure I would have said the same thing. I'm like, no, I, I need the details. I want to read the fine print. And as we get into this portion, maybe you'll feel the same way. One additional note as we get started. Actually, it's going to be three, so we'll hold, hold tight for a second. When God gives his Torah, his, light, his law, his book of the covenant, he gives it to all of Israel. He doesn't just say, judges, lawyers, elite, kings, rulers, come here, let me tell you what the rules are. He tells everyone all at once what those rules are going to be. He sits and he says, all of Israel needs to hear this, and here is the book of the covenant, and I'm giving it to you, which is what I want to do today. I don't want to be the one person standing up here saying, I think I have some special insight. Now, I've studied, and, and we'll look at this text, but I'd like all of us together to take a look at these passages and read them because they are given to all of us. And I think if, it's, if I have to sit and wrestle with this text all week long, you have to do it for at least a couple minutes on a Sunday. So we're all going to wrestle together, and you can argue with whatever God put in the text, and we can all figure it out. The Torah is given to all of us, and all of us need to wrestle with this. And as believers, most of us here, I think, are followers of Jesus. Not all, but many of us. We also look at this text through the lens of the resurrection. And we'll try to do that, too. We'll look at it through a belief that there is a continuum of history. Um, and this is true also if, you, if you're a follower of the God of Israel, that the God of Israel is moving his people. And so this is part of what he's going to be doing in order to move us along. We believe this because the word Torah doesn't just mean law, although that concept is in there, but it actually has the same root as the Hebrew word for to aim. So the Torah is given to us in order to aim us, to direct us. It's similar to the word in Hebrew used when you want to aim an arrow or direct something. So the Torah, as we talk about God's laws, they're not given just to say, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, bad, 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 bad follower, good, good follower, right? or this is what I want the world to look like, and this is what it does look like, they're given to aim us in a particular direction. And as Kevin has told me that he is like sort of beat into us as a community, is that these commands cannot be read apart from the context of their narrative. So remember that we have just been set free from Egypt. We have been enslaved there for 400 years, for generations. And after we've been brought out of Egypt, we've traveled... And here it is, about the 50th day since we escaped from Egypt, and God is giving us his commandments. And it's in that context that we need to remember to receive them, that we're receiving these commands after having come out of all that was part of Egypt and all that is part of the ancient Near Eastern societies and cultures. Now, as we work into this text, the first thing I'd like to point out is something quite unique. And then we'll start to read together and wrestle. Stranger danger. Now, when you see this, if you're like me, you probably have thoughts in your head. Like my mom used to tell me growing up, never talk to anyone in a van without windows. Right? 
<laughs> my whole life walking to and from school, I was like, where's that van without windows? Like we might be in real trouble. And we were always taught about stranger danger. And it depends upon your parent as to whether or not this was just sort of like, hey, you know, let me just help you be smart. Or like the freak out parent, right? That was like, every person's scary. Don't talk to them. Don't accept candy. Don't accept, you have to x-ray all of your candy after Halloween. Like no one, right? All of the, anybody have that intense? And they loved you desperately, right? But, but it was sort of, I remember feeling like maybe, maybe that person, right? And at the same time, having an experience with much of the world that was really lovely and beautiful and some people a little bit more unique than others, but really taught to be afraid of the stranger. And that is a universal experience. We are all taught to be afraid of people who aren't quite like us. If it gets to a crazy point of view, you call it xenophobia. It's a fear of a foreigner, a fear of a stranger, somebody different. But two times in the book of the covenant, this is the twice that God's going to actually, in this short passage of these couple chapters, he's going to repeat this command twice. In Exodus twenty-two twenty-one, he's going to say, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. And the word there for foreigner is ger. And it's really a stranger. It's somebody that's a stranger in the community. And God doesn't just say, don't, mis- don't oppress them, like don't have laws that relegate the foreigner to a second-class citizen. He actually says, don't mistreat them. And the rabbis are going to have an interesting conversation about that. So hold that for a second. The second time God says this in our passage of the Book of the Covenant is in Exodus 23, verse 9. It says, don't oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. And the narrative, the story, the placement of where we've just come from sets right into both of these echoes of this command that we are supposed to deeply care for the people who are not like us. And that is an incredible, beautiful push into this text. So if I had to pick one commandment that I really wanted to talk about as we look through all of these of this book of the covenant, I'd love to hang out and just talk about what does it mean to have a God who's so desperately and deeply concerned for the foreigner? And when it says you yourself know how it feels, in the Hebrew, it's it, literally, it's your soul. Your soul. You, you know in your soul what it feels like to be a stranger. And when we encounter strangers, we often encounter, we are afraid that we're encountering evil. We see things like this, like, hey, careful little girl, don't talk to the man with candy. Like, as I googled stranger, scary things came up instantly with just the word stranger. It's an instant thing that all of us in our societies, and it happens within religions too. If you're a Christian and you haven't had experience with persons of different faith, you encounter that person of different faith, and we freak out. On my last tour to Israel, we entered into the old city through the Muslim quarter, and we had to walk through the Muslim quarter for quite some time in order to get to where we were going, to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, where Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, and then resurrected. As we're walking, it also happens to be Friday morning, and it also happens to be Ramadan. So it's Friday morning prayer during the month of Ramadan, and the Muslim quarter is all of a sudden quite packed. And there are Israeli guards up on scaffolding with big flak jackets and big weapons on alert. And they look scary too. And I know they're there to protect us, but I'm also kind of I'm like, but you look kind of scary, intimidating, scary. And an Israeli police officer had just been stabbed a couple days before. 
in that same place. So they're all looking, right? And as we're going through, then people are yelling directions on megaphones to all the pilgrims that are going up to the Temple Mount to pray. And I immediately, all of this throng of humanity, which let me just say, if I were at Disneyland and I saw a throng of humanity coming at me, I would also be freaked out because it's just a space issue for me. Um, But you see a throng of humanity coming at you that doesn't look like you and that, let's be honest, here in America, is often our only encounter with this particular throng of humanity is on the nightly news. And so people who are completely covered up have just eyes only seen, men, women, children, all coming. And I can feel the 30-plus Americans behind me go, what the what? Does she know where we're going? Why are we here? And what's happening? And I, up front, I thought, I love this. Because each person that I'm encountering as we come, and we were swimming upstream. It was all, we had a, like, single-file line. Every person, I'm like, Danielle, every person you make eye contact with, remind yourself, image of God. Image of God. That person's in the image of God. Don't get distracted by the different ways we look. Don't get distracted by the different dress. Don't get distracted by the language that you can't understand. Just look at each set of eyes and think, image of God, and try to make a connection. So I'm the nut at the front of the line, you know, like this, smiling big. Hey, how you doing, everybody? Going up to pray, way to go, right? So I'm smiling, but I'm also aware that that is a discipline and an experience of a lot of time in the land for me that allows me to be at that place. A lot of experiences with lots of different people, Muslims and Jews and Christians, that have been very positive, and some, in all areas, not as positive. Let me just say very briefly, what was so incredible about this was as we got into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the place where Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected, there were groups of Muslims that were coming to take pictures because it's on the tour. They're in the old city. They want to see all the different sites. And so they're down in the bowels of the Holy Sepulcher as I'm teaching about the gospel and how Jesus died for us. And they're taking video and picture of me teaching. And I'm thinking, this is awesome. This has never happened to me before. And we had some, a friend that was there who kind of spoke a little bit of Arabic, so he's welcoming people in. And I'm trying to find every Arabic word in my life, like I might know, and trying to say Isa instead of Jesus, so they know who I'm talking about. And we can have this connection. So this very uncomfortable moment at the beginning for many of us, because for me, that group of persons is a stranger. I don't know them yet. And they don't know me. I'm also a stranger. And they can have just as much fear when they see me as our group could have had when we see them. And let's just be honest. This is just reality. I'm not trying to uh, sugarcoat this in any way. We all have people in our lives and people groups and country groups. And I'm sure for many of the world, America is that. That's why a lot of Americans, when they travel, put a Canadian flag on their uh, backpack because we would like to not be known as the persons that did X, Y, and Z in particular areas. As we go through this world, we're always encountering strangers. And a lot of us have been taught to be very, very deeply afraid. And if two people who are deeply afraid and assuming the worst about one another come and meet, what's probably going to happen? The worst. Something that's, right? We're going to go, oh, well, I thought 
They were trying to reach for the sugar. We were having tea together, but I thought maybe they were grabbing a gun, right? Like, I mean, it, it, we immediately make assumptions about other persons because of our fears and because of our concerns. Well, God starts in his book of the covenant with constantly reminding his people, specifically very much two times, to say, you need to remember what it felt like to be that person because you were that person. And this is the key. When we were strangers, God loved us. When we were yet far off, God pulled us close. This is our whole story of the gospel. And it's also the story of God reaching into Egypt and pulling us out. God wants us desperately to be very deeply concerned with the foreigner in our midst. And I think it's very hard for us to do that. And if I'm honest, I think if we're all honest, there are people in our midst on a daily basis, maybe even in our own homes, that we treat as the stranger. Now, Disney has taught us that we should not talk to strangers unless they're hot, right? So, so Sleeping Beauty knows that she should talk to Prince Charming. And, you know, we might say, hey, you know, just, hey, you're going to meet a tall, dark stranger. And everyone's like, great, like that's, I'd like to do that. And we also have this issue of like, well, if I'm not supposed to talk to strangers, then how do I make any friends, right? So if you start telling your kids, don't talk to strangers, don't talk to strangers, but then you're like, go say hi, go say hi. Kids like, I'm not, I don't know what to do here. Hug go hug uncle so but they're strange to me. Like, I don't want to hug that person, right? And you have to let all of this as we're navigating. And then as I was searching, can you say, remember, every good friend was once a stranger. Isn't that so lovely? It is true, right? All of us at one point have this great friend that initially they were a stranger. And then as I'm searching, it's amazing how fast someone can become a stranger, right? So then that person who was a good friend, all of a sudden you're like, that person's strange to me. I've never met them before in my life. I have no idea what they're doing. And if those of us who are a little bit older, um, we might remember that there was a band called The Doors and they had a song about the stranger. And he says, people are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Isn't that true? When you are a stranger, everyone is a threat too because you're in a place in a space where you're not the norm and we're all afraid together. So here's what the rabbi said about this. They said that when you talk about this command, when God stops first in the first portion of be kind, do not mistreat or oppress the foreigner, the rabbi said that the reason why that word mistreat was there was because it wasn't just about oppression. That the thing that you could do to somebody else that would be worse than even um, taking their money or or taking a, a livestock with them, treating them unfairly, would be to talk about them, to harm their view of themselves, to speak poorly about them. And the rabbi said, if you do that, there's actually no financial restitution that can be made. Because the power of the words that you speak about the stranger, how you talk about them in your midst, that can't be changed. That stays forever. I think it's incredibly powerful that that this can't be rectified. A financial institution, a financial debt, that can be fixed. But even after an apology, the pain and the damage, the reputation to someone remains. A stranger in particular is sensitive to his or her status within society. He or she is an outsider. Strangers do not share with the native-born a memory or a past or a sense of belonging. They're conscious of their vulnerability. Therefore, we must especially be careful not to wound them by saying things against them in our communities. I love this idea. Because I think I see people on Facebook all the time wounding another 
as though that person's the stranger. I see people voting out dear people that I love out of the kingdom of God based upon a comment on Facebook that they may or may not understand. And immediately choosing to treat somebody like the stranger. Haven't you ever heard somebody just vote somebody else out of the, out of the Christian faith? I've heard it. I've heard that tribalism and that stranger danger and the foreigner feel. I've seen it within race relations, within religious communities, interfaith conversations, and within the community of religion itself. And I, what I'd like to at least take one moment to stop and say is that as we go through this text together tonight for just a few moments, please don't make anyone the stranger. Don't let anyone else who's going to have a conversation with you about the text that we're going to read that's really difficult to read, don't let them feel vulnerable. Don't let them feel afraid. Don't let them feel like you might push them off the edge out of the bounds of Christianity or whatever your religious persuasion might be. Let's together have a conversation where we sit and we listen and we learn rather than vote people out treating them um, as though they are the other. God cares deeply about this. He says it twice in this short passage. Don't mistreat, don't oppress, because remember, you too know how it feels to be a stranger, to be a foreigner. It was that first day of school when you had to sit at the lunch counter by yourself. It's when you're in the office and you can tell people have been talking about you right when you walk in. And all of a sudden, you're a stranger again. We know how that feels, so let's not do it to one another. Okay, grab your text, and we're going to start to read together. But what I'd like to do is, would you be willing to turn very briefly? We're going to give you like five minutes or so into some groups. If you want to read by yourself, go ahead. We understand. Um, But for those of you who would like to be social, I'm just joking, and Jesus-like, I'm just joking. Um, Please grab somebody next to you, and would you just read through, and every time you read something that you're like, I don't really like that, I'd like you just to point that out. And every time you read something you really like, point it out. I like this. This is good. We would keep this. Like if Spark were writing a book of the covenant, this would be in there, right? And they're like, we would take this out. We would take this out. We'd keep this in. All right? When you get to the price about uh, virgins, I'm just suggesting maybe that would go out. Okay? Virgin bride price. I'm just saying maybe at Spark we wouldn't keep that one particular. So take a look. (laughs) (laughs) And you don't have to report back, but I just want you to read this. This is your holy text. It's the very words of God given to Israel, and it's difficult. Okay? So you can read on your tablets. You can pass those out. Tabitha, thank you. If you don't have some, raise your hand, and you can read alone or together and go. You're going to start in Exodus. Let me get back to that title for you guys. Exodus chapter 20, verse 22. And read through 2319. If you're getting a handout, you can mark on it. You can say, yay, I like this one. No, I don't like this one. Okay. I know there's more to go through, but in the interest of time, let's uh, stop for a couple minutes. So any portions that you were like, yes, that's a great thing. And I would like to keep that in here. So tell me those portions that you thought that's pretty good. Defending the widows, good. And the fatherless, excellent. 
We like that part, right? That's uh, verse uh, verse 22 of chapter 22. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If they do, they will cry out to me if you do. And I will certainly hear their cry and my anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Maybe that part we're like, ooh. And your wives will become widows and your children fatherless, which is sort of an interesting thing, right? Don't take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, I will make more widows and orphans. So there's that part. So we like the beginning, maybe not as much the end. Yeah? Good. What other parts? Did you like? Kidnapping? Great. Yeah, you're just out. That's it. All the parents are like, don't curse your parents. Right? We like that part. We're putting that in. Maybe not the death part, but the do not curse your parents part. Right? Uh, What else? Any other parts you liked? What about uh, chapter 20? Go ahead. Good. Not denying the injustice to poor people. Absolutely. Like, do we want a system that is equal, right? I mean, isn't that beautiful that God is saying it shouldn't matter what you earn or how valuable you are in your community, that that justice needs to be for both equally. And at the beginning, it also says in in chapter 23, verse 2, don't follow the crowd in doing wrong. Like, you're not supposed to spread false reports. You're not supposed to follow the crowd in doing wrong. And when you give testimony lawsuit, don't pervert justice by siding with the crowd. This is a very human, like, you can hear, wow, God really knows us. And that makes sense. And we like that part. That's good. Verse 4, one of my favorites. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. And if you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, don't leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Wow, that's a real distinct command for compassion and empathy towards even somebody that would hate you. Uh, what other parts did you think, okay, that's, that's pretty good? How about the seventh year? Yeah, so, so we have slaves and they're Israelites. So there are people who are enslaved to us, and yet they are treated with some respect, right? If you harm them, you have to set them free. If you, they are in your household, they have to be given a day of rest. And they're all going to be set free on the seventh, so on the seventh year. So you, you have slavery, but it's not a forever state, and you're not born into it. As distinct maybe from other cultures where you'd say, well, all of, like how Israel had been treated in Egypt, all Israelites are enslaved. Here it's, I've fallen onto bad times, I'm, I'm poor, I have to sell myself into the household of somebody, and I have to work for them for a while, like indentured servitude, but I'm going to get set free. And some rabbis would talk about how like if they got, they sold themselves year six because the Jubilee year was fixed, then they still got set free year seven. So we're like, okay, so we don't like the slavery part, but we like the set-free part. And we can see maybe some humanity there. Um, I know a lot of people have taken chapter 21, verse 5. You know, oh, isn't this beautiful? Like the guy says, you know, I could be set free, but I now have a wife and kids. And I love my master. And it uses the word love at the beginning part. Like he loves his, his master and his wife and children and doesn't want to go free. Then he can go and take his ear to the door and get it pierced with an awl, which sounds 
difficult. Um, and get that piercing. Some people talked about this is where the judges were or go to the house. So it kind of releases the master, the owner, um, of his obligation to set this person free and says, they've chosen to stay with me. Like, oh, people will use that as an example of being a bondservant for Christ. It's really a beautiful sort of picture of choosing to be a servant in the household of a beloved person. But I have a problem with it. First of all, we start with slavery, and I don't like that part. And then the next part is, if right before in verse 3, if the seventh year comes, he's going to go free alone, even if he has the wife and kids. So what kind of choice does this person have? He either has to leave his wife and children, or he has to indenture himself for his, his entire life to this person. So, eh, right? It's like one of those, like, maybe, may, no. Maybe, no. I mean, I, I've heard lots of pretty sermons about it, and I told Kevin, we can't teach that because... It starts with slavery, and it starts with him in a pressure point of having to leave wife and children, and this sounds horrible. Um, how about verse 7? If a man sells his daughter, right there, we're like, eh, right? We're, why are we selling daughters? Why is that happening? Why are women being treated as property? And then yet, there's some decency in it that comes forward. He's, he's got the right. He can't sell her to foreigners. He has to, afterwards, he has to keep this woman in his house, and he can't deprive her of the rights. If he marries another, he can't stop saying no food, no clothing, no marriage rights for you. And if he doesn't provide her with these three things, she's to go free. So we hear some challenge. We have a father selling a daughter. Not great. But we also hear some humanity stuck in it. Okay, but you have to make sure to treat her decently, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. So there's some beautiful pictures of justice and beautiful pictures of what we're going to call redemptive movement. So you see what God understood of his people as they were coming out of Egypt and then not just coming out of Egypt and living into like a land that didn't have any influences. They were coming out of Egypt and living in a land where there were Philistines, where there were Jebusites, where there were Canaanites. Anyone who's living in the land of Canaan is a Canaanite. And so as they're living in that land, they are going to be influenced by all of these other cultures that had sorcerers, sorceresses, that had bestiality, that had adultery, that had altars cut with a tool in all sorts of different places. We're finding that as the Israelites are moving in, they're not just having to try to shed what they've learned from Egypt, but they're also going to have all this influence in the new land. And God knows that if he just simply says, no slavery, they will never, ever be able to keep it. Because the pressures of the world are too great. They know only one way. They've only been enslaved for 400 years. They only know that way of life for themselves. And so God says, okay, I won't take you so far that you can't follow. But I am going to put these redemptive steps in. And this is what's called a redemptive movement hermeneutic. And it's the concept that the greatness of the Torah is not simply that we have a noble vision of a free, just, and compassionate society someday, but in the way it brings this vision vision down to earth in detailed legislation. How are we going to get there? Well, we're going to move in this way. So the redemptive movement hermeneutic says, well, in the ancient Near East or the New Testament period, they would be standing here, the biblical period, and looking at the Bible and going, wow, that's a big leap forward for me. But today, we stand here and we're like, that's a giant leap backward. We can't, we don't have slavery in our land. We don't want it. We had it at one point, And these verses were used to justify it. We aren't there anymore, thank God. Not at least 
here in the United States, but there are places around the world where slavery continues. And we look here from our world, from our vantage point, and we look at the Bible and go, that's so backwards. That's so far back. But all of it is moving us forward towards the kingdom. So that by the time we get to the apostle Paul, he will be telling the people who are in indentured servitude in the Roman world, who he's coming into contact with, to try to get free. And then he'll tell in the letter for Philemon with Onesimus, he's going to say to Philemon, hey, you don't have to, you know, free Onesimus, but remember, you owe me your life, so you should probably free him. So we have this movement, and we see the same thing happening with women. We see women being treated as property in the Hebrew Bible, and then by the time we're starting to get to the first century, and with Paul, we see shifts in movement. All throughout the Hebrew scripture, there's some shifts, and movement, and then it'll get to the point where just before the time of Jesus, there was a queen who ruled over Israel named Queen Salome. She's not in your Bible, but she's in um, your extra biblical texts, like the Apocrypha and Josephus and others. And Salome was such an incredible ruler because she insisted that women have a marriage contract that they could fall back on, that girls would be educated right alongside boys. And we start seeing these shifts in the biblical land, even just prior to the time of Jesus. And then through Jesus's ministry too. Luke chapter eight has a whole bunch of women with Jesus. Romans chapter 16 lists women who are working alongside Paul, some who are even named apostles. So we have a redemptive movement hermeneutic. And that's the only way that I can sit and hold this text and say, thank God it's here. I'm trusting that as God said this, the Israelites were like, dang, that's progressive, right? They were like, wow, that's, so we have to let them go every seventh year? I'd never heard about that before. We were there for 400 years, and these people never give their slaves, servants a rest. We're trusting that God is moving us forward towards his kingdom. So though these laws do not abolish slavery, and it's really hard for me that they don't, I feel like we've been set free from Egypt, so why do we still have this here? Though they don't abolish slavery, they do create the conditions under which people will eventually learn to abolish it. Not less importantly, they turn slavery from an existential fate based upon your birth, your ethnicity, into a temporary condition. So this isn't going to be forever. It's going to be for a short time that you're going to be this indentured servant. And slavery is not what you are or how you were born, but something that's happened to you for a while and which you will one day be liberated from. That is what these laws, especially the law of Sabbath, achieve not only in theory but in living practice. That every seventh day, the person who is the servant, who's the slave in your home, gets to taste that liberation and freedom. Every seventh day, they're treated with human dignity. That the woman, the daughter that is being sold is the one that gets to taste what that dignity would be like because she has to be treated with dignity in the household as though she's a wife. This is hard. Anybody think it's hard? So next week, if anyone wants to preach out of this book, these particular book of the covenant laws, feel free. You can hang out right with the enemy's donkey and falling into a pit and all of that. Um, It's difficult, but it's a step forward. It's movement. I believe it's movement. Do you guys hear the movement in it? The ancient Near East, other societies, they didn't have this movement. They didn't have a movement forward. They had people enslaved for all time. They had the abuse of women and property of women for all time. That's just how it worked. God's taking his people and saying, you are to not do that. It should not be that way among you. And we're moving you forward so that eventually these things will be brought out.
It's kind of like looking at a child and saying, ah, baby Isaiah, you've just been born. You're a couple months old. We really expect you to start walking. And next week, uh, run the 400. It's not a reasonable expectation for an infant to do that. And as God brings his people out of Egypt, he's looking at Israel in its infancy and saying, here's what you can now do, but I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to move you further. And we'll hear those movements come some in Leviticus, some in Deuteronomy, and then we'll hear the stuff that we don't like as well, and we're going to read it all because this is God's word, and he's given it to us for a purpose and for a reason, and we're supposed to wrestle with it. He's created us with a brain and a soul, and he wants us to use them. We can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit, focusing on the love of God, fully demonstrated and at just beautiful display for the world to see through the person of Jesus. We can start to see this through the lens of the resurrection and start to see that redemptive movement towards freedom. But I don't want anyone to ever come to Spark and say, well, I didn't know that was in the Bible. I never wanted to ever lie to a kid as I was teaching the kids. We'd always tell the full part of David and Goliath. We didn't stop right before the beheading. Now some of you are like, there's a beheading? Right, because your Sunday school teacher doesn't want to tell you that part. And the Samson story, dude, do not read that. And definitely don't read it in the Hebrew because, dang, it's intense. It's a beautiful, crazy, horrible, awful story. And the only part we always tell is Samson was faithful and he knocked the building down. Samson was not faithful. He got lucky at the end because Jesus loved him, but that's about it. So, As we start looking through all of our text, my prayer is that we will be honest with it, that you allow, listen, God can handle our discouragement, our frustration, and our wrestling. He doesn't need the wrestling practice. He's not surprised this is in here. Some of you may have read it for the first time, and you're like, oh, I didn't know it. I didn't know this part. And then the next time somebody says to you, you know, I believe in biblical marriage. I'd just like to point out some of these passages. Which, which period of time are you referring to? Because the Bible will record a few different portions, and um, I don't think the word biblical should be tossed around so, so cavalierly anymore. I think we need to be very, very careful when we start talking about all of this, and when we start talking about how we want to obey the Bible literally. Well, did you ever curse your parents, and are you still living? Thanks for wrestling. Thanks for being the church that wrestles. Thank you for knowing that God is big enough for our doubts and that he's still here and present and sovereign and beautiful and wonderful and moving us forward. And thank you, God, for not leaving us here. Thank you for moving us forward with this beautiful picture of what your kingdom can be and will be someday. And God, as we look through this and we do see beautiful principles of justice and hope and redemption and love and care in these difficult passages, We also see that you intend for our world to work without favoritism, that you care deeply for the stranger, the foreigner in our midst, even when that is often us, and that you care how we treat one another. So God, as we worship you, 
as we understand what it means to worship you properly from beginning to end in this passage, as we try to understand what it means to worship you in our lives of how we treat one another in our justice systems, um, on, our, on the road as we walk down the road, how we, how we love one another in our lives. God, we ask that you would start to shape and mold our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the love of your Son, that we might be more fully developed into his disciples. They will know us by our love. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.